This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Seeks to be defined by grace, grace, grace community, community, and, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It's good to be uh, together yet again, and we've been, we've been walking through these Beatitudes, this most famous sermon that Jesus ever preached. From it, we have this list of blessings. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. And we've talked about how just how upside down this idea of being blessed is. We've talked about how many of the things that Jesus says are quite countercultural to the ways that we think we would be happy, right? The way to go up is to go down. The way to be blessed is to mourn. What it means to truly be blessed. We talked about just how unique that word in the Greek is. And so uh, in that, I want us to go back through. We're going to read really quickly again the Beatitudes we've already covered. And we're going to come to the one that we're going to talk about today. But think through again for yourself. Does this, do these things, these, these aspects of God's kingdom, do they actually confer a blessing for me? Do I sense Do I have that sense of blessedness? Do I understand why this should be a blessing for me? Matthew 5, starting at verse 1, when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So if if I were to summarize this particular verse, there's a famous phrase that I think we all know that I think would apply really well here. That is, you are what you you are what you eat. We've heard this very long time. So it's been, been in our lexicon here for the last, at least the last century and a half. And when you look through the history of this phrase, it's really interesting when I was doing kind of the study for this, just thinking through kind of where that phrase came from. We know what it connotes, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but there's this proverbial saying that carries this idea that uh, uh, the, in order to be fit and healthy, you need to eat good food. That goes back, we can go back 200 years, 1828, famous French lawyer and physician who essentially said in French, tell me what you eat and I will tell you what you are. Later, a German philosopher wrote, a man is what he or she eats. Now, these phrases, they stayed in France and Germany for, for a while. It didn't really make it out until about 1930. You had an American nutritionist and Victor Landler, and he started using this term on his radio show during that time. And it was kind of new, and people were kind of figuring out, oh, some of the things that I'm dealing with could be impacted by the things I'm eating. Oh, there are things, there are some sicknesses that might be the result of the, the things that I eat. And so it became popular for a little bit. Then it got picked up in the 60s during the hippie era. The whole you are what you eat became very, very famous. And people started uh, embracing this macrobiotic whole food movement uh, that we now have whole industries based off of. And so it was not a shock over time for people to understand that food has some impact. Like what we eat has some impact on us. It has some impact on our health. Now, there were folks, especially in religious circles, because in religious circles, people get crazy. And you had some folks who took that concept and went extremely far. In the early 1800s, there was a, a minister, his name was Sylvester Graham, and he had a strong disdain for any of the normal human pleasures or human urges. He had a, an especial, uh, special disdain for anything related to lust. He believed that consuming sugar, alcohol, or meat would make people lustful, greedy, or sick. So in his mind, these elements were themselves the genesis of lust, greed, selfishness. So he, in his mind, he would say that the best diet in order to keep you from those horrible urges 
is a completely bland vegetarian diet, devoid, no knock on vegetarians, totally fine, completely devoid of spices, flavoring, and seasoning. His motto was, the blander, the better. I'm not gonna comment. There are some people who cook that way now. I'm not gonna say who, nobody in this church, but some people still kind of live by that, that's okay. But he, he really believed that there was this incredible uh, uh, impact that it would have internally on you and the urges and the things that your body would naturally want. And so he eventually made a snack that he wanted to, uh, to compete with some of the snacks of the day. And so he wanted something that would be an alternative to this popular sugared and processed cracker at the time. So what did he do? He combined bran, wheat germ, and unprocessed wheat flour to make his now world-famous graham crackers. And these graham crackers uh, were, were the kinds of things that people would say, if you have issues with some of your urges, eat this bland snack and you, you'll get rid of those urges. You'll battle the right way. It's the external that's the problem. So we'll do what we have to do to fix the external. Then the internal won't have to do any changing. And so this, uh, this, this snack became really, really popular for a while, so, so much so that uh, these graham crackers had a large, not the crackers, but uh, Sylvester Graham himself had a huge following, a cult-like following, so much so that he ended up building uh, major kind of living areas and almost communes for his followers. So you had these followers that were following Reverend Graham all over the place uh, because they were like, we're eating all, and they would eat these very, very bland foods all the way, and he was hugely like anti-lust and anti-self-pleasure of any kind, and there was this massive cult following. Now, there, were, there was no scientific evidence that this had any impact whatsoever, and ironically, or even coincidentally, depending on how you look at it, he died at a relatively young age of 57, and none of those things helped him. His followers eventually disbanded and they all kind of left the commune and that became kind of a thing of the past, except for he had a protege who was even more into this than he was. This protege uh, ended up saying, you know, we've got we've to take this a step further. So by the end of the 1800s, Graham had already died, but this particular man uh, was younger and he had a, a bigger vision for this idea. So he took these ideas far more beyond where this where Graham was. And so John Harvey Kellogg was so anti-lust and anti-urges and all those things that he decided to create a cereal. Can you guys guess what it was? Cornflakes. Y'all, breakfast has never been anything like this for y'all, right? It's never going to be the same after this. So he makes these cornflakes and folks are like, we've got a, we got a battle. We've got a battle. So he created, he said, you know, a bland diet will prevent these abominable urges. If, if people just eat grains, nuts, cereal, including his cornflakes, he's got to make money, eat those cornflakes and you will be able to battle what is causing those issues internally. Take care of the outside and the inside will just follow. Now it's true. And we know that nutritionists today, we definitely can see food most certainly has. In conjunction with uh, genetics and other uh, external environmental factors, they can be determinative of our physical health. There's no question we see that. But think about this. If your diet can determine your health, what determines your diet? Your appetite. It's probably the appetite that should change before we get to the quote-unquote diet and the external changes, right? Because even if you change those things, the urges and the cravings continue. Becomes a massive battle. Now, over time, eventually, we start to train and retrain our appetites so that the longing and the yearning begins to change. And so what we're seeing here, and I think Jesus is showing us how this really does apply, this principle applies spiritually, to us, And in this fourth beatitude that we've just read, we see that in one sentence, Jesus tells us that our appetite will determine our spiritual health. Your appetite. It's vitally important that we understand it this way, because otherwise you'll just create a bunch of external things for yourself. Pat yourself on the back, brag to other people about what you don't eat or what you don't do because you're struggling with pride. But you don't know that. So you're bragging to everybody about everything you don't or do do instead of going It's the appetite within that's changing. 
It's the thing in me that would make me want to reach for the thing. And that is changing. That's real holistic change. We're not talking about surface change. Jesus has never cared about surface change. He's never cared about what think, how things look. He cares about how things are within. That's it. All of the window dressing, all of the ceremonial things we do, not that those things are bad, but if that's what we're trusting, we have nothing. If we're just trusting, I'm just gonna, I, I'm, I'm gonna try to stick with this diet, even though I know that my cravings have not really changed, which means I'm probably sneaking and eating other things anyway. This is what we do spiritually. Jesus points out some things. And so, there are a few things I want us to, to look at as we think through that, that beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. First thing we need to understand is hunger and thirsting. Those are very powerful, powerful urges. Hunger and thirst, powerful. Now, we may not understand just how powerful it is because today, even in some of our, our most difficult socioeconomic places, we don't understand hunger and thirst the way these folks would have understood hunger and thirst. Jesus addressed a people who truly understood what it meant to be hungry or thirsty. Remember, that was a region where very few people were prosperous. This was not a region where people had running water, just readily uh, available whenever we needed it. You know, right now, you know, we, we, we are in a position now where we're like, I don't know if I really want to even drink tap water. Most of us, I have some kind of filter or something that at least filters comes out of the refrigerator. We don't even mess with tap water. That's a totally different world. These are folks who uh, just having water was a major deal. It's the reason why most cities were always built, I mean, uh, uh, constructed right near large bodies of water. You needed water. You couldn't make it. And so you've got these folks that Jesus is talking to. They've experienced this kind of hunger. It's, there's a reason why he's using these, these pictures, because they understand. We know what it is to be hungry. We know what it is to be so hungry and so thirsty that we're willing to do and sacrifice anything in order to get water or food. Jesus is saying that just in that small part, Jesus is saying there's something, some type of hunger and thirsting we should have for this idea called righteousness. There's something that should be making us long for, making us have almost a hunger pain because we don't have it. So, yeah, for us, hungry is waiting an extra 10 minutes in the drive through waiting a few more minutes for the rolls to get out the oven. If I'm hungry uh, and I want to wait in line, I might be able to wait in line, get some food, even though I've just eaten two hours prior. But I'm but I'm hungry. That's our idea of hunger. It's a it's a very, li very limited idea. And so Jesus uses these metaphors. Right. And he's showing these are people who are motivated by hunger and thirst. And he's doing that so that he'll motivate their and motivate our appetites to crave righteousness. Why? Because that phrase, you are what you eat, it's, it's somewhat accurate. It, it hits on one aspect for sure. But I would say you are what you crave more than you are what you eat. That's the way we have to think. I am what I crave. Because there are sometimes, hey, praise God, we something we craved and we just... We, we withstood the temptation and we didn't do that. But that urging's still there, right? That's the thing that we have to continue to pay attention to. It's not just, oh, I didn't give in that time, I'm good. It's that, man, that, that thing still tugs at me. That thing still, still pulls at me. And so I know that I still need an appetite adjustment. On some level, I need an appetite uh, adjustment. And so you are whatever you crave or you are whatever you hunger and thirst for. Whatever it is you're hungering for, whatever it is you're thirsting for, that is more of who you are. Another thing we know about hunger, there's this picture Jesus gives us of this intense desire. So this is, I always feel like, and I'll talk more about this in a minute, I feel like this is one of the Beatitudes that gets softened and watered down so much more than the others. And again, part of it is because we can't really understand and kind of ascertain just what that kind of urging is. But there's an intense desire that's communicated here. It's not just a passive thing like, oh, that's there. OK, I'll eat it. Like those of you who know me, I, I can eat. I like to eat. And there are many foods that I don't really care for. But if it's in front of me, I'll eat. 
I go, okay, I'll eat that. It's good enough. I'm okay. It's not that I was hungering for it. It's not that I was really yearning for it. It's just there. A lot of our eating is that way. A lot of our eating is just, it's there. I'll, I'll take it. Hey, what do you know? In turn, I'm not as hungry as I would have been. But it's not this sense of like, I am yearning for this thing, this intense desire that Jesus talks about. These verbs in the Greek, these verbs mean an intense desire, an ardent craving, and this all-consuming pursuit. It's almost as if you are so parched and nothing is going to stop you from getting water. That's the feel. What can you think of right now that you crave like that? I crave so much, there's nothing that would stop me from getting to it. What things? Now, there are things. There are some things, and here's maybe the better way to, to, to word this question, is what things could be taken away from you right now and it would drive you crazy? What are some things that are just close-fisted? You're like, I could never give that up. I would lose, I would, I, I would come undone if I had to give that up. Because that's probably more who you are. What things could I not, it's not about all the things I've acquired. What things could I not give up? Because that comprises more of who we are. In other contexts like business or sports, whenever we describe a person who is ambitious, who is a go-getter, who's passionate, who's, who's, who's desperate to achieve or to succeed, we say they're what? They're hungry. You hear it all the time. Someone who's a young associate uh, in, a, in a firm somewhere and they're just working 60, 70 hours. Why? Because they're hungry. A new rookie in a certain professional sport, they're in the gym. You always hear them say they're the first one in, they're the last one out. Why? Because they're hungry. We understand that concept, but do we understand it spiritually? That's what Jesus is saying to these folks. They understand the physical concept, but do they understand it on this spiritual level? This idea of being hungry, it's, it's that passion and that drive that should move any believer to this true holistic Righteousness. This is the way David described uh, his longing. We know this really well, this appetite, this driven appetite for righteousness. In Psalm 42, he says, as a deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, God. I thirst for God, the living God. When can I come and appear before God? Or later in Psalms, he says, God, you are my God. I eagerly seek you. I thirst for you. My body faints for you in a land that is dry, desolate, and without water. Hunger and thirst, these are intense desires. There are a lot of other things we could point to that are intense desires for us. Is this one of them? Honestly, is this one? When is the last time you could feel like I intensely am desiring righteousness to know God's heart better so that my heart can operate differently? When is the last time we yearned in that way? This isn't to shame any of us. This is to really kind of elucidate some areas in our own hearts that we need to always be looking at, asking these questions. Man, what, what am I yearning for this week? Just in this past week, what are the things that I demonstrated a deep yearning and desire for? That doesn't mean those things are bad things, but what did I demonstrate? Now, how does that even compare to anything about the things of God that I've yearned for this week? Anything. Hunger and thirst, intense desires, that same intensity that we need in seeking righteousness. Keep in mind that these verbs that are used, these are present participles. That means you keep hungering and keep thirsting. So it's not like I got my fill here, I'm good. It's I'm always in this ever-present state of hungering and thirsting and needing to be filled and in so doing, being filled. So this takes us to the next question. I think we can, we can pretty much kind of gather at least a little bit of what that hungering and thirsting looks like. There are things I'm sure we all have hungered and thirsted for uh, in, in some symbolic ways for sure. But the, I think the harder question to answer is, so what is righteousness here? Okay, Jesus says we have to hunger and thirst. We have to long for a thing. What is righteousness? What, is, what does that mean? This is where I believe our beatitude here gets watered down way too much. 
Because the way that we think about, and many translations will soften it by simply using the word righteousness. Again, nothing wrong with the word, but in English, it just does not connote exactly what this Greek word means. So if you, depending on our, our, our background spiritually or the way we're bent, um, when we see righteousness, we're only going to get one half of it. And it's, it's a, a, a fine half. We're going to get one half of it. It's not a wrong word, but it doesn't carry the fullness of the word that's translated here. So for most of us, when we see the word righteousness, we think about individual holiness. Now, if we don't, we ought to. Because we can always go one way or the other here. People just want to talk about the individual holiness and it stays there. Or they want to talk about uh, the, the outer stuff that we should be doing. It's a both hand. So let me just, let's talk about individual holiness for a minute. Because that is vitally important. Something that today it seems like we don't talk enough about because of the ways that it's been abused. And because of the ways that churches have manipulated people in using this idea of holiness to get people to kind of jump on whatever agenda but Jesus has the only agenda we should care about. And the idea of being holy, this individual holiness, we should be yearning for that. We should have a deep hunger and thirst for our own holiness. Now, this word in the Greek for righteousness here, this word is, is uh, the, the true definition of the word is judicial approval. So in ancient Greece, the idea would be that uh, this person or a person, it actually meant much, something much more corporately in the city. So it wasn't just an individual thing, by the way. Uh, spiritually, for us, Jesus, the way he uses it, it does become individual. But if you were just living in ancient Greece for centuries before, this word referred to whether or not you were in good judicial standing within the government's purview. So here's what I mean by this. We don't even understand this because we use a certain word in an emotional sense. We don't use it in a judicial sense. And it's the word guilt. Everybody here, we talk about feeling guilty. But the word guilt has nothing to do with, with what you feel. Guilt is something judicial. There is a code of laws somewhere. And if you transgress that law, you are guilty whether you feel like it or not. How many people here have ever run a stop sign? The rest of y'all lying. We've, at some point, you think of some minor infraction. We've done that. When you've run it, you didn't drive and be like, oh my good, I'm a criminal. I deserve jail. We don't do that. Some of us do the California stop where you just kind of stop but not fully and keep going. You're a criminal. You violated the law. You transgressed the law. It might be a small one, but you've violated the law. So when you violate it, whether small or large, it does not matter whether you feel guilty. When people are like, I just, I feel so guilty. And listen, this works both ways. Some of us are carrying shame and a heaviness because we feel guilty when really nothing judicially would ever in God's economy tell you that you're guilty of anything. But you feel guilty. Guilt is not something that is felt. Now, shame is felt. And hopefully we do feel shame when we are when we become apprised of our judicial guilt, whether in God's economy or here. We should feel some degree of shame when we are made aware of our transgressions. But guilt, guilt is something judicial. And so when this this idea of righteousness means good standing in lieu of whatever the judicial laws and codes of the land are. So when we talk about personal holiness, you cannot do that if you don't know the law, if, if you will. If you don't know what the statutes are, if you don't know what, what the king of the land has decreed, how could you know if you're righteous? You don't get to determine for yourself if you're righteous. We struggle with this word because basically we're like, am I righteous? Well, do I feel guilty anywhere? No, I must be righteous. I don't feel like I've done anything bad. I, I don't feel like I, no, nobody's come to me to tell me I've done something horrendous. And so I can't possibly be not righteous because I don't sense any emotional guilt anywhere. You can't know that. We can't know that unless we make a regular habit of getting into where Christ's heart is, where his mind is, where his words have been. We have to dwell in that. We have to sit in that. 
In order to be in good standing and receive judicial approval, we have to know the laws of the land. This is why scripture reading is important. And it's not because scripture reading makes you righteous. Again, that becomes that other thing, that external thing. It's because the truths therein begin to change your appetites. It does not matter. We don't have to go and brag about what we've memorized or not. It's okay. But the bigger question is, all those things that if we are reading and, 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 and memorizing, what appetites are being changed as a result? Because if they're not changed, then there's likely many places where we are sitting in judicial guilt. But we found a way to insulate ourselves because we don't feel guilty about it. That's the danger. And so when Jesus, we're going to see this later in Matthew where he talks about your righteousness should exceed that of the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they had on the surface, all the things were righteous for them. They prayed better than you. They knew way more scripture than you did. They, they tithed. They sang all the worship songs. They did all of the things that ceremonially and publicly you're supposed to do if you're a person of faith. And Jesus says, your righteousness needs to exceed theirs. Why? Because so much of their righteousness was just a public show. So much of their righteousness was simply, I'm following the rules, therefore I must be righteous. But the appetites never changed. The desire for God's glory was still there. The desire to usurp his authority was still there. Y'all, the desire to usurp his authority is still in us. The times when I just decide, I, I've decided this is actually good. I know God says something else, but for me, this is what's true. We struggle. This is a part of that struggle with real righteousness. Also, righteousness, a lot of times, our yearning is not righteousness. Our, our yearning is being right. So as long as I can, whatever I have to do to be right, I feel righteous. I definitely don't feel guilty when I'm right. So I must be okay. So we want to be, uh, I want to be right more than I want to be righteous. Which tells me that my appetites are still disordered. So when you look at this word and you study, when you study the life and the words of Jesus, it should never, ever leave you, though, focusing exclusively on this individual holiness. This individual holiness is vitally important and we all need to always be in that place. What does my individual holiness look like? But Jesus doesn't leave us there. And this word itself doesn't leave us there. That's why it just doesn't do it any, a good service because this word does not just mean individual uh, uh, holiness. This pietism that we feel like, okay, once I have that good, I've, even if it's all in good intentions, like, I really am walking with Jesus and I really am. Uh, a lot of my appetites have changed and, and I do and I battle these things and I, and, I, and I walk in step with faith and repentance and those things are really happening in me. And that is awesome. But Jesus actually raises the bar a lot higher than this. How do we know this? Because this word that's translated righteousness also is translated justice throughout many translations. As a matter of fact, this word that's translated righteousness is actually a word that has been borrowed from even older ancient Greece because it came from an old uh, Greek mythological character who had the very same name that this Greek word is. And this character was the spiritual embodiment of righteousness and justice. This word means both individual holiness and social communal justice. Both. So Jesus is saying, we need to be yearning our individual holiness as well as social justice. Basically, we need to be yearning justice internally and justice externally. All righteousness is, is the, the, the justice, because remember, justice, things should be put together the way they were meant to be put together. They should be functioning the way they were meant to be functioning. So any area where we sin, there's an injustice. Anywhere where we sin, there's a break in the way things are supposed to be functioning. So what Jesus is really saying this is incredible because this is really the first beatitude that really starts, it should force us to step outside of ourselves. Anytime you sit, you get in your scripture, you open your Bible and you close it, and you just feel so much better about your relationship with God, end of story, you missed it. 
because every single part of who we are in Jesus should impact who we are as a single individual person as well as a part of a larger community. If you don't find both being impacted, you're doing it wrong. Probably because you didn't let him do it. So when you think about this picture, this is such a big one because when you look at how, how this holistic way of understanding the scripture, we basically see Jesus saying, blessed are those who yearn for personal righteousness as well as social justice, for they shall be filled. This constant hunger, a constant thirst for God's approval in my personal life, as well as justice in society as a whole. Why do we need to say this? We always need to say this. Because historically, we have constantly used a version of justice or a version of righteousness that allows us to hide from social justice. Or we may have come from tr traditions where we have used a version of uh, righteousness that only focuses on societal injustices to the exclusion of personal holiness. It has to be a both hand. This bifurcation, this idea of like, I've had it, we've had it said here, like, you know, I, 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 you know when we talk about these things, I, I, sometimes I just want to just want to focus on Jesus. And it's like, wait, th there should not be. If you're feeling that way, there might be something wrong with your expectation of what you think Jesus has called you to. Maybe you grew up in a church environment that was incredibly encouraging to your soul, and we're not taking anything away from that. And you've grown incredibly, but you have nothing for injustice right now. Why? Because you grew up in a truncated version of the gospel. And you need, we need, to find some way to find that holistic peace. The moment I find myself tiring of either talking about holiness issues for myself or tired of talking about justice issues over here, it's not Jesus that I want it. Just be honest. I want the version of whatever Jesus was that I had as a kid, or I want the version that I've constructed for myself right now, but I don't want the historical Jesus, the one who caused me to care and to yearn for both of these. I don't want that one. I, I just want the one that made me feel less guilty. I just want the one that makes me feel most comfortable. Over these last several years, things that have always been happening, but they've come to the forefront. The, the, I was talking uh, uh, to my sister-in-law earlier uh, a few days ago, and you see this issue where uh, it's very, very obvious that people don't have a problem saying what used to be the quiet part out loud. Now, that's always been the case. My question is, why, historically, is the church so silent when these things happen? See, I don't have to talk about how important it is for the church to talk about holiness. We all agree, and I think most folks, depending on the, I know most of the backgrounds in this, in this building, that issue, it always needs to, but you don't have to convince people that you have to talk about it. You don't have to convince people that they should care about it. Folks who aren't doing it, they know full well that they're not doing it. And when this called out, we know, okay, that's, that's, that's me. I just may not be wanting to change it. But what's interesting, in many of our church circles, many of these communities of faith, if you will, getting people to even think that this is something we should care about, it's like pulling teeth. We first... Uh, Planted the, the, the church. I remember someone who was, you know, wanting to know more about the church and very affluent uh, person uh, in, in one of the uh, Atlanta suburbs. I remember he pulled me aside and he said, you know, I, I, I just don't understand people bringing up issues of like justice. I don't, where is that in the Bible? It's like I've been a Christian for 30 something years and I don't remember anybody preaching sermons about like justice stuff. Like, why should I care about that? Like, I got my own issues, my holiness issues, and I, I want to be able to sit in a place where I can just focus on that. Why am I having to talk about these other things? Can we just get back to Jesus? These are the things that are said often, right? What do we learn from this? What does it mean for us as a whole to have this hunger and thirst for God's approval in my personal life, as well as the roles we play in societal life? What does that mean? I'm really trying to get this out because honestly, this was a very, a very, very, very hard, hard sermon to preach after last night for me. As we probably know, yesterday at 
young man, 18 years old, um, decided to drive three and a half hours to the, what he said is the, 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 the largest concentrated area of African Americans near him. And because of the things that he had uh, been imbibing on, if you will, some of the things that he watched, some of the newscasters that he watched, some of the, the uh, documents that he read, he had this view, this particular conspiracy theory about what he thought people of color were doing to America. It's a very popular theory uh, uh, espoused by a lot of famous people. And he had been reading this and he got to a point where he just felt like the only answer right now is to grab my semi-automatic weapon to drive three and a half hours and to go to the, in his mind, the blackest area that he could find and start opening fire at a grocery store. 13 people were shot, 10 people were killed. I think eight of them were, uh, uh, were customers and I think two of them were employees. It might, the number might be a little different, but you have employees and customers that were, that were killed. And during this time, Many of the things that he, apparently he posted this 180-page manifesto. And when, and when uh, people were speaking up and they were quoting some things from this manifesto, it's, it's stuff that you would have seen and have heard espoused from very popular talking personalities. Now, this issue is not to go, it's so bad that there are people saying horrible things. That's always been the case. Here's the problem. When these horrible things are espoused, there are people, church-going people, many of the folks that we've seen that have committed some of these atrocities are active, are, are actually church members somewhere. The horrible, uh, the, 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 um, the, the, the Asian women that have been killed, what was it, a year ago, this person was, was very present and active in their church. There was someone who just uh, killed uh, a black man in Grand Rapids, Michigan, my home state. Killed a man point blank, unarmed, shot him assassination style, back of the head, just killed him. Active member of his Presbyterian church in Michigan. Why am I saying this? Because for all of us, this isn't to say, oh man, that's so bad about what that person did. If we're not in a position to have our appetites changed, if you're not hearing a gospel that changes your appetites on that, who knows who's capable of doing some of these things? If the appetites aren't changed, what else would change that? It's not just guilting and shaming. If the appetite doesn't change, there should be something, I don't care where you go, it doesn't have to be this church, there should be some place where you are that if there's something in you that has a false view about other image bearers, it should be challenged in your church. If you grew up in church and you never had that sense, there was something missing. If God says the most important thing we could ever do, the most important uh, commandment, the most, the, the, most, uh, the, 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 the most valuable two commandments is what? Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and what? Love your neighbor as yourself. If you have no language to address these things, that means your gospel and your church only helped you do the first part and not the second part. We need to be in a place where we hunger and thirst after both. We need to be in a situation where when we see areas where the kingdom doesn't look the way it should, we mourn because we're yearning for something better. Guess what that means? Something more than just thoughts and prayers. The same way that thoughts and prayers is not going to fix whatever individual holiness issues that you have, thoughts and prayers are not going to fix the societal ones either. It's a both and. And we've got to yearn both equally. We don't have to it's so easy to bifurcate these two things and go, well, first I'll deal with this and then I'll deal with that. Jesus doesn't give an order of operations here. He says, hunger and thirst after righteousness. This double intention in this word, those two things, that aspect of personal holiness and what it means for societal justice, we need to be yearning for that. And we should, our heart should be burning when it isn't there. In the meanwhile, we yearn. There's a lot of horrible things. It's very difficult sometimes. I found it extremely difficult today, and I'm sure a lot of you did. Extremely difficult. Why? Because I know, to be perfectly honest, I know I've been in church structures and church 
uh, uh, organizations, the majority of, of, of folks uh, in those organizations, I have found to be folks who espouse some of these other things outside of what Jesus would say justice should look like. And sometimes it feels like, why do we even do it? Like, what are we even doing? We can come here. We can sing songs. We can preach sermons. You can feel great going home. And all we've done, sometimes I feel like all I've done is create a convenient escape for an hour or two. You don't come here for escape. I, I've tried to get us to stop saying things like, you know, no matter what you're dealing with, leave that at the door because we're here to have an experience with Jesus. Actually, he wants to meet you in those hard things. This isn't the place to escape. This is the place to engage. So what are we doing? It can just feel like we're just going through the motions at times because as long as I get a feeling that feels familiar to what I felt at some other part of my spiritual development, I feel like I'm, things are good. I feel familiar now. Familiarity is not a bad thing. Don't exalt it to just what righteousness should look like. That, that, that just felt so familiar. It was just so good. To, it reminded me of, that's great. Awesome. Nothing wrong with that. Does it get us to that place of righteousness? Because if it doesn't, I'm wondering what we're doing. Y'all, we can sit and look and, and, and besmirch the character of folks who... Uh, are done with the church and get angry. It's like, that's so bad. Everybody wants to just down the church. A lot of it is because they have not seen this kind of righteousness. That's supposed to be what is compelling. Not just our, our rigmarole, not just our ceremonies, not just our good showmanship, not just our niceties. What should be compelling is this dual nature of righteousness that's there. Man, I saw people who really seem to love God and want to see real change internally, and they really care about community, and they really care about seeing injustices curtailed. They, they have this idea, this big view of the kingdom. That's what I want to be a part of. If that's not what we are doing, then what are we doing? Y'all, this is all Jesus is saying. He's talking to these folks, and he's saying, if you want to be blessed in that sense, that sense of blessedness that goes beyond just whatever circumstances you're feeling. If you want to experience that blessed that is declared over you, this idea that I am held in the hand of the one who rules the entire kingdom. So I can sit and I can mourn. I don't have to mourn as somebody who doesn't have any hope. I can look at these things and get angry, sad, and want to see change and frankly find ways to be a part of that change. But I don't get to the point where it leaves me despondent. See, a lot of us, we get this and we're frustrated and some of us get, it's, it's a true thing, compassion fatigue. And we're like, I, it's so much compassion, it's so much compassion. You don't have to offer all of the compassion. You can rest in the compassion of Jesus. If I know Jesus is brokenhearted over this, I can rest in that. I can only give so much of myself, but I can rest in that. And I can speak in the way I know he speaks. And so if that is where we are, praise God, that's what righteousness is. So in the meantime, while we sit in this double place of I've got things individually, I see things uh, societally, we yearn for God's justice to be present in our fallen world. To the extent that we're able, we live according to God's standards of righteousness and God's standards of justice. And we want to see that justice experienced in our world, both for other people individually and corporately. That's what we want to see. Y'all know, I've said this before. The reason why a lot of people just get completely done with the church is because even when we do our nice things, the things we think are loving, they're just tools for recruitment. And people don't want that either. They've been on that. This, it's like I've been there, done that, got the T-shirt, gave it back. I know all of, I know all of your, uh, uh, everything that you're going to say, your script, I know it. The information age really messed that up, y'all. All you got to do is go on YouTube and just see tons of people who are saying the same things, the same things without. It's not that those things themselves may be bad without the substantive evidence of actually caring and loving people the way Jesus does. It's not just a bunch of people who are like, man, this, this culture is so messed up. People just don't love God anymore. No, they're able to see all the ways you didn't love God 20, 30 years ago either. They see that and they're like, I hear you and I see what you're saying, but I'm struggling. Because maybe I come from a community where the church that should have said something 30 years ago didn't do it. So miss me with this idea of righteousness. If this type of righteousness did not move your heart to care about these other things, then you were hiding behind 
your personal piety. And people now don't want that. And they shouldn't, because that's not what Jesus calls us to. So we yearn for righteousness. And we yearn for it not in a way that we create it. <clears throat> we don't yearn for it in a way that we think we can fix it. We yearn and we hunger. So how do we do it? How do we hunger for thirst? <clears throat> how do we hunger and thirst as I thirst? <clears throat> how do we do it? We make, we make holistic righteousness a priority in our lives. The individual holiness, priority. Systemic injustice, priority. <clears throat> These beatitudes, specifically this one, and we're going to see more, they require us to join this this, the church has always been and supposed to be this grassroots movement that fights, that loves and cares and battles and fights these areas of injustice, getting deeply involved in the struggle however we can. What does that mean? That means wherever we have authority, influence in our lives, in our jobs, in our families, wherever we see that authority, in government or in church, we call out that we, we echo that biblical call for justice internally and externally. We, we echo that. We do that by making that a priority. And since all these issues of injustice are interconnected, you start battling one area and it puts us squarely in the struggle of several other ones. You just get there and go, I know that that's not the way the kingdom looks. I don't have all the answers, but I know that's not how the kingdom looks. And I want us to be a community. I want to be a part of a community that's trying to figure out how to deal with those as a, as a function of my discipleship. It's not something separate. So I don't like it when people are like, well, this church over here, that's one of those social justice churches. No. You mean the gospel? Now, hopefully it's not at the exclusion of something else. If that's the case, we got to talk about that. But so often that's just what it is. Eh, this is just one of those kind. I don't really want to deal with that. I just want to deal with this. That's not what we're called to. Like Dr. King said over and over again, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. So we befriend, we, we find ways, and I think about just yesterday, you find ways to, to get behind and come close to those who have been victimized by any form of injustice, side with them. The same way that we're supposed to love the person who is beset by sin. They're beset by a form of individual injustice within themselves, and we go near to them. Love them, care for them. How can I help you look at what justice should look like for you? We should be doing the same thing. Those who have suffered systemic injustice, those who have dealt with that, side with them, listen to their stories. Let their pain break your heart. This is what empathy should look like. This is what it means to love your neighbor. You don't think that people, image bearers, you bearing some of their burdens should break your heart? Jesus said, I send you even as I am sent. Your sin broke his body. Our sin broke him. How can we say we're above allowing the pain and the suffering of others? We're above letting them break us. We should feel like I don't have the luxury to just get tired of this. I am. I'm exhausted. But I, there's something which means, Lord, I've got to rest on something else. Because I don't have the energy to do it myself. That was my feeling this morning. So while it may take a long time, what it means to persist in truth-telling, both individually and corporately, it's going to bear out good fruit of justice. It's going to bear out good fruit of righteousness. That's what Jesus promises. We will be filled. You know how I know that this is something, and we'll talk about this in a couple of weeks, you know how I know that this is something Jesus intended for us to take in this corporate sense? Because what do you think he means later when he says, blessed are those who persecute you for righteousness' sake? What, what does that mean? Nobody's really persecuting you because they saw you praying three times a day. Unless you just feel like being made fun of is persecution, which a lot of people do right now. We've got this martyrdom complex. That's not what it is. The moment you begin to communicate something different about the kingdom that is contrary to what's happening right now, that's when persecution ensues. So we know that this is the case, and it's going to take a while, but the beauty of it is when you're tired, exhausted, you see what happened yesterday, and you know what we should say, the one thing we can rest in is the truth is on our side. God is on our side. The, the pain that you feel, the tears that you, that you weep, those are tears he weeps. He's on the side of justice. 
He's on the side of righteousness. And because those words really are interchangeable with this Greek word, it'd be so interesting to look at those famous words that King said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards righteousness. It bends towards justice. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness, after justice, for they will be filled. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are reminded, I am reminded that we can so often just be so overtaken by either our views of our own personal righteousness, and so we create rules for ourselves, and we are walking feeling no sense of emotional guilt, and yet there is incredible judicial guilt that is declared over us. God, I'm thankful that you love us, you care for us, and you do not leave us there. You've given us your spirit to draw us, to convict us, to show us exactly where your heart is. So God, I pray, I pray, and we pray this often, I pray that you would indeed give us some sort of holy discontentment in areas where we have erected other Jesuses that are not you. God, I pray that you would give us a deep moving and not in a place where we would just sit and live in shame, but we would uh, mourn it in such a way that you promised to comfort us. This is why those early Beatitudes are so important, Father, as you tell us to acknowledge our sin. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You call us to mentally acknowledge our spiritual brokenness. Then you say, blessed are they who mourn. So, Lord, you tell us to mourn our sin. Lord, help us to see our sin. Help us to mourn our sin. Help us to be humble in that to the extent that now we realize we are hungering and thirsting after your righteousness, after your justice. God, if we try to bring justice on our own, it's going to be a mess. If we try to bring righteousness on our own, it's going to be a mess. We know we've tried it. God, we need you. Thank you for the ways in which you have demonstrated your love for us. You've demonstrated righteousness for us. You've demonstrated what holiness, what justice looks like. Your word tells us that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Lord, make us into your righteousness and your image. Let us do this not so that we can brag about ourselves, but so that we can make your name famous, your kingdom being on display. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.